0: to contemplate. As we dive into the book of Acts today, after a short recap, we'll begin in chapter 10 and learn about a man named Cornelius. Here's Pastor David.
1: I'm going to recap a little bit because it has been a little while. So let's, uh, I don't have I don't want to spend too much time, but let me do as quick of a recap as I can. I'm going to talk kind of fast because I want to get through this so we can get to the meat of what we're going to talk about today. So Acts is a book the Holy Spirit inspired a man named Luke to write the book of Acts. Also, he wrote the book of Luke. Um, we have such clever names for books in the Bible. Uh, so he inspired Luke to write this, and this is a history of the early church, okay? It's a history of the early church. Luke was a doctor. Uh, he went around with a guy named Paul, the Apostle Paul, and they, they sort of, he, he hung out with him um, when Paul was going around from church to church and doing some things, and, and Luke was able to uh, meet and, and interview and talk to all these different people who had been there since sort of the beginning to, to the point where we end the book of Acts in a few years when I finally get there, um, that, that he was able to talk to all these people and get all this information. And what it is, is it's a history, a very serious history in other words Luke takes incredible care to include detail after detail after detail and there's a reason that he does that okay a couple of reasons One of the reasons he does it is so that you can verify what he said. Because of course when he wrote it and when this book was first circulating, you could take it and and you could take these details and go find the people that he talked to, find out whether that's really what happened and, and, and so on, right? It's also something that separates quite clearly things like the book of Acts in the Bible and things like the more uh, general kind of legendary stories that say the Roman or Greek religions would have had, right? Kind of like our Paul Bunyan type stories, right? They, they have this flavor to them. They sound like legends. This sounds nothing like legend. You know, if you, if you were to put it in context, it'd be like, I met a guy named, you know, Tom Brewster. He lived 610, you know, Sycamore Street. He was this old. He looked like this. This is what he saw. This is what he said, that doesn't sound like a legend. That sounds like a history. And that's what Luke was doing. He was writing a history. We know from just the nature of the Greek that he used in writing, that he was a very educated man. He used a very high level of Greek in his writing. And he tells us right at the beginning, he's writing this as kind of a letter to a guy named Theophilus. And he tells us right at the beginning, listen, let me tell you about all these things that happened from the time that Jesus rose from the dead until you know the time that he ends writing the book, which is right around 62 AD, somewhere in there. And he, he sort of starts it out, he sort of hinges the whole book on saying, listen, Jesus was dead and rose again, and we have many infallible proofs of that. Not, and we have many legendary stories, but we have evidentiary infallible proofs of the fact that Jesus died and rose again. All these people were witnesses. All these people saw it. We know it to be true, not spiritually true, actually true that Jesus bodily died and was bodily raised from the dead. And this is important because if Jesus' body is sitting in a tomb in Israel somewhere, we are wasting our time here and should be watching football or whatever, Right? That is, a, that is the crux, the, the basis of Christianity and following Christ is that we follow a living God that was raised from the dead, that died for our sins so we could be right with God and defeated sin and death and being raised again. So this he puts this right at the beginning of the book. And then he starts out, you know, the story. Here's Jesus, he's risen from the dead. He's talking to his apostles and he's telling them, hey. You're going to be going out into all these places, starting at Jerusalem, then you're going to go to Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. You're going to teach people, right, my ways. You're going to tell them about me. You're going to tell them that I rose from the dead. You're going to tell them to follow the commands that I've given, which are life-giving for them. And he says, and you're going to have a helper. I'm going to send my Holy Spirit to you. I'm, I'm going to go back. I'm not gonna be bodily here with you anymore. Instead you're gonna have the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit's gonna empower you to bring the church to where I want it to be. Then Jesus leaves, we see at Pentecost, okay, about uh, 50 days after uh, Passover, we have Pentecost. And at Pentecost, there's all these people from all over the world who are Jewish, and they come for the Feast of Pentecost. They come into Jerusalem. This is part of uh, what they do uh, for their religious practice, and they're there in Jerusalem. And on that day, there's 120 of these Christ followers. These people who believe in Jesus, who knew He rose from the dead, and so on, and they're sitting in this room, and you're talking earthquakes, the sound of rushing wind, fire on the head, and whatever, and they come out and they start speaking in all these different languages, okay? And all these people from all over the world are there, and they hear them speaking in the languages that they know from the place where they're from. And it's not like they were at Yale in the languages department and, and around a bunch of language scholars who might conceivably be able to speak a bunch of different languages. These people who were speaking these languages were fishermen and people like that from a place called Galilee, which would be like, I don't know, Yakult or something, right? They're out in the boonies, Amboy, I don't know. Um, these are not scholars. Okay, not that they're not scholars in Yakult and Amboy, I just, I just made those words up. i mean, I didn't make them up, somebody did though. Um, I'm just saying these were not people who you would expect to be able to speak all these languages, so they knew it was a miracle. And on that day, as these people are proclaiming God, and then Peter gives a sermon, tells them, hey, listen, you know, you crucified Jesus, but he rose again. You have the opportunity to be forgiven from your sins, and 3,000 people joined the church on that day. And the church just kind of, boom, takes off. And then we went through a bunch of different stories. Problems from within, Within the church where certain things happen, problems from without, persecution coming on the church. But in every case, what we saw was the continuation of the gospel spreading and the church growing. And then Stephen, the deacon, was, was martyred. He was killed. He was, they threw rocks at him until he died. And at that point, people got a little scared, and they took off. And what Jesus had said about it's going to start at Jerusalem and go to Judea and, and Samaria and the ends of the earth, that's, that started to be fulfilled. They left Jerusalem because they were scared that somebody will throw a rock at them. Off they go and they preach the gospel wherever they go and the word of God starts to spread. Then we saw Saul, uh, who was a guy who was a persecutor of the church, who was actually there when Stephen was stoned, a guy who used to drag people off to prison and consent to their deaths because they followed the way, they followed Jesus Christ. All of a sudden, he meets Jesus. Jesus reveals himself to Saul And as it happens when Jesus reveals himself to anyone, Saul was never the same again. Becomes a follower of Christ and starts his ministry. Last thing we read in the last uh, message that we had was about Ananias and Dorcas who were healed in in different circumstances. And here we are in chapter 10 now. And we're going to learn about a new, a new guy today, so let's get into it. Um, if you haven't, if you've missed any of these messages, if you're new, whatever, you can go back, basically all of, I think there's 25 or 26 of them, they're online, it'd be like watching a season of a show that has one guy who talks. Um, really, really an exciting, exciting time. Really good looking guy though. Um you're laughing too much at that. Okay, let's, let's go. Here we go. Uh, chapter 10, verse 1. There was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian Regiment. Okay, um, so the, the, let's get timeline down first. This is estimated by some to be between 39 and 40 AD. So we're talking 9, 10 years after he's risen from the dead, maybe seven years or so after Paul's conversion to Christianity, and here we are um, in a place called Caesarea. Caesarea is a port city about 60 miles northwest of Jerusalem. I think we have a map, and you can see there, Jerusalem should be somewhere kind of in the middle. Caesarea is northwest of that by about 60 miles. Um, Relatively new city at this time, about 50 years old. A guy named Herod the Great had had commissioned the city to be built starting in 23 B.C., and it took him about 10 years to build what was a marvel, of the ancient world, okay? This uh, city, thousands of people lived there. It was a port city. Uh, Herod, who was well-known to make basically uh, just marvelous architecture, had been involved in making the city. Uh, it was, it, they had put a big statue of Caesar Augustus, who the city was named after. Uh, Herod was trying to get favor with Caesar Augustus, names the city after him, puts a humongous statue of Caesar in a temple that rivaled the statue of Zeus, that it was in Olympus, which is one of the ancient wonders of the world, Uh, that statue, the one of Zeus, is about 43 feet tall, okay? So this is a big statue of Caesar in this temple, and we have these people who are, uh, as with as with all the peoples and tribes in the Roman world and the Greek world at this time, you have all kinds of different idol worship going on, right? Dionysus and Apollo and, and worshiping Rome or worshiping Caesar and all these different religions. And then you have this group of Jewish folks who also live in Caesarea, okay? And in fact, this relatively large group of, of Jewish folks were all, as history tells us, or many of them were massacred in 66 AD, uh, you know, another 20, 25 years from this time uh, when the Jewish war began. So the Gentiles ended up killing a lot of these Jews. But that's sort of your history of Caesarea, that's where it is, so you have some context. And we have this guy named Cornelius, tells us he's a centurion. Centurion is a commander, a Roman army commander, a professional officer of the Roman army. They would command 80 to 100 folks, okay? And there's a picture I have of a centurion. He's the guy kind of in the middle with like the brush on his head. That's not Cornelius. That's some guy in a movie. But that's what it would have sort of looked like, I guess, uh, to our best guess. And he would have commanded these men. It was a, it was a position of honor. It was certainly a position of honor. Um, and he was a guy who we know from the Scripture, what we'll read here, that he had been in Caesarea for a a period of time. Some of you may be military brats, and you move from place to place to place, and you know what that's like, and, and that's a rough life, and maybe this guy did this at one point, but we know that he's been there for a while because we know that his family's there, that he has a home there, and even we know that he's been doing all these good things for the Jewish people there in Caesarea. So this guy's been there for a while. That's who Cornelius is, okay, part of this Italian regiment. We know the Italian regiment from Latin inscriptions that we've gotten through archaeology. We know it's a real thing. It was these folks who were Roman citizens and had some connection to being Italian. Um, and I find it interesting that Luke mentions it, but it all goes with what I told you earlier. He includes minute details Because if you get this letter, and so here I am, it's 63 A.D., and I I get this you know book of the Bible from someone that Luke has written is talking about this, and I read this thing about Cornelius. I could go to Caesarea and find the guy named Cornelius who was a centurion who was in the Italian regiment, just like I could find somebody with an address, and I could ask him all this stuff that Luke wrote. Was it true? He did it on purpose so that what he wrote could be verifiable. Okay. There he had no it was no fear about go check my sources. That's why we see this level of detail in the story. Let's look at the next verse. Verse 2. It says, "A devout man and one who feared God with all his household, who gave alms generously to the people and prayed to God always." Okay. So, what do we know? Cornelius Although a Roman, although culturally uh, one who would naturally be someone who went to idol worship and the philosophies of the Roman and Greek world, was a worshiper of the one true God, the God of Israel. That's what it tells us here. Um, He was this guy who was seeming to be a wealthy Roman officer, and yet he's following the God of these Jews. This is an interesting thing, okay, Um, because if he's going to be this guy, this devout man, He's giving alms. It means he's giving to the poor. He's taking care of, of those in need. He's praying always. He's seeking after God. But we also know that culturally he's a Roman and that everything in his culture, in his society, you know, where he is and what he's doing is saying, no, no, no. We worship. Caesar, or the God of War, or, or Dionysus, or whatever, right? We, we worship these things. We go after the philosophies of Stoicism or Epicureanism. We don't do this, the Jewish one God thing. It would have been completely countercultural. He would have had to completely break with his culture to do that. There's a guy, a man, who grew up Muslim. His name is Nabil Qureshi. And he's an interesting guy. He, he was a Muslim growing up, culturally, his friends, his family, all Muslim, very, very important. His faith was very important to him. And he got to the university, got to college, and he met a Christian guy. And uh, Nabil and, and his Christian friend, they would go back and forth, right, trying to save each other's souls, trying to convince each other of what was true, and over time, as he put Islam to the test and put Christianity to the test, he realized that all the things that he had believed about Islam were were not able to hold up to scrutiny, and the things that he was learning about Christianity were over and over and over and over and over over again proved through evidence. And he came to this point, this crossroads in his life, where he became convinced that although everything in his life had led him to be a devout follower of Islam— The fact was that Jesus Christ was God and was the son of God and died and rose three days later. He became convinced of this fact and now he had a decision made because he believed it here. He was convinced of it. The evidence showed it clearly. And yet in order to move in that direction, he would have had to give up all of those relationships which are what life is made of, right? Family and friends, And all these things, and yet, he wanted to be a truth follower and seek truth, and so he did choose to follow Jesus. And it was a very hard choice for him. And after he chose this, this is what he says about what happened. He says, I was now an outsider, both to my family and to all my friends. It was just weeks before I received my first death threat. I never regained my old friends, and my family has never been the same. He paid a price to follow what he believed, what he believed was true. He had to pay a price. And I I think that Cornelius, you have to look at him as a man who has done something similar, a man of wealth and power who in his world, in his culture, would have been bound to worship these idols, would have been bound to go with these philosophies, would have been bound to do that, but instead put all that away because he believed it was false and went after God who he knew was true. And so, there, there's what we have. Let's look, at, uh, let's look at the next verse. Verse 3. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God coming in and saying to him, Cornelius. And when he observed him, he was afraid and said, what is it, Lord? So he said to him, your prayers and your alms have come up for memorial before God. Okay. Ninth hour. That's 3 o'clock in the afternoon for those of you who don't know Jewish timekeeping. Uh, It's 3 o'clock in the afternoon. This is the normal time that's set for Jewish prayer. Okay? This would have been a normal thing for the Jewish folks to do. And we know this is not a dream that this guy's having. Let's remember, he's not a Jew. He's a Gentile. He believes the God of the Jews is the one true God and, and prays to him and worships him. But he has not become a Jew. Okay, And here he is praying, seeking, seeking truth, God show me, and here comes this angel, and he sees this vision clearly of this angel, and it says that he was afraid. Now, we've talked before about what happens when a human being is in the presence of an angel. It's incredibly scary. It's incredibly scary to be in the presence of a being that is that powerful, I'm going to give you an example, because I have, I have not been in the presence of an angel and seen an angel in a vision or in a dream or anything else, so I can't tell you about that. Maybe some of you have. I'd love to hear about it if you have, um, but let me tell you about something that did happen to me. I used to, when I was young, I used to go out boogie boarding in the ocean, in the Oregon coast. Uh, I have no idea why I did that. It was freezing cold, um, but I go out about this time of the year, and it was, you know, like it is at the coast this time of the year, super dark clouds really cold, probably was raining, and I'm I'm swimming out to the, you know, paddling out to the waves, and the water's all dark, and you know that Jaws is just like right below you, and you're like, "Mm -hmm." so you got this kind of nervousness that's right here, kind of all the time, like at some point, at some moment, you know, boom, it's over, right? And, and, and so you're sort, of, you're sort of in that mindset. And all of a sudden, as I'm patting them, I'm, I'm, I'm a ways from the shore at this point, right? Out in the ocean. And in front of me, all of a sudden, pops up out of the water this humongous sea lion. And he goes, oh, like that, okay? <laughs> Here's the thing. Sea lions aren't bad, In fact, if you've watched Animal Planet or something, they look really cute, they're like fat and hairy and they're rolling around. They seem like nice animals, okay? And I I don't believe that that a sea lion generally has any ill intent for a human, but in that moment when this thing, and I'm just gonna estimate, I'll, I'll underguess a little, probably a million pounds, something like that, okay? When this thing comes up out of the water in front of you, and here you are, slightly less than a million pounds, and And it's in its element, because I don't know how well any of you swim, but I bet none of you swim as well as a sea lion. So he's got the advantage on me, and he's humongous, and I'm in a place of of fear because of just the power and size, and I think that's where we would be if we saw an angel, okay? All right, angels are scary, whatever, let's move on. Okay, so he sees this angel, he's afraid, and he says to the angel what a smart person would say, which is, what is it, What, what do you want me to do? He calls him Lord. Which, you know, puts, puts it in perspective that Cornelius understood the nature of the power structure of this relationship. The, guy, the angel, who was incredibly powerful, was in charge, and he was going to do what the angel said. So he says, what do you want me to do? And this angel tells him something that I find fascinating and, and just a huge blessing. He says, listen, your prayers and your alms, this giving to the poor, these things that you're doing, this heart, your heart... These things that you've done out of, out of your heart, they've come up for a memorial before God. In other words,
0: when you pray, God does listen. God listens? Did you hear that? What an amazing thing that the God who created everything hears us. It blows my mind sometimes. And you'll want to be sure and listen to part two in our next episode for more. And let me remind you that you've been listening to Pastor David Robinson from Axe Church in Vancouver, Washington, and we'd love to have you visit us in person. Get easy directions and all the info you need anytime at axechurchnw.org or call 360-885-9000. Hope to meet you real soon. Well, that's it for today. Thanks for listening, and we'll look for you right here next time for more with Pastor David Robinson here on Contemplate.